Hello, welcome to Feed, Play, Love, the bite-sized podcast for parents. I'm Siobhan Hunt. This is a show all about parenting. I speak to experts and carers about everything from fussy eating, toddler behaviour, sleep and more. There are benefits to living in a connected world. Like when your child asks you whether Venus flytraps need to eat flies to survive. You can tell them it's a good question to ask Google. But right now, in the current health crisis... Too much information is not a great thing. Dr. Alicia Thornton-Benko is a GP on the front line, and she's taken a quick minute out of her very busy day to give us the download on what we, as parents and carers, need to know about the coronavirus. Hi, Alicia. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Siobhan. Hi. What's it like in your practice at the moment? Definitely very dynamic and evolving. Um, We're all sort of navigating new territory. Um, It's certainly busy. I think we're all, and I think all practices around Australia and probably the world um, are starting to get firmer idea and protocols in place, but obviously things evolve and have to change with that as we, you know, come across more. But certainly there's a lot of frightened people out there. Um, there's a lot of information and it's hard to sift through. So, yeah, we're all, we're all busy. <laughs> okay, well, let's get what we know at the moment um, from the horse's mouth. Sorry to refer to you as a horse, but you are a GP. So, yeah, you know what I mean. I know what you mean. <laughs> what, are, what are the symptoms of the coronavirus? And this is where it all gets very complicated because it's variable and it depends. I mean, some people have coronavirus and actually don't know it and will be completely asymptomatic or have very mild symptoms right through to people that have acute respiratory distress and as we know um, from not only in Australia but overseas that people have died and it has been fatal but the vast majority of infections are on the mild side but it can be we we do say flu-like symptoms but it can be anything from nothing to a slightly sore throat, fever, body aches, cough so it's very non-specific, unfortunately, and it's hard to decipher symptoms of coronavirus from, you know, a cold or a flu, to be honest. So when should people get tested? So this is the very, very important information um, that is for everybody to, to be very well aware of. Basically, we talk about a suspected case. So... In that setting, um, it's currently, and look, this can change and it has changed, but currently that's defined as meeting certain criteria. And we're only really testing the people that meet these criteria because they are higher risk. So they have to satisfy what we call epidemiological criteria as well as clinical. So the epidemiological criteria is if there's any international travel in the 14 days before any illness onset, any symptoms. Or there's close contact in the 14 days before the symptoms, you know, the illness onset with a confirmed case of coronavirus. And what we consider a close contact is someone who's actually had greater than 15 minutes face-to-face in any setting with a confirmed case from that 24 hours before the onset of the symptoms in that confirmed case or sharing of a close space for more than two hours from 24 hours before onset of symptoms in the confirmed case. So that's basically, you know, in order to be meeting the testing criteria, you need to have one or the other. And then in addition to that, there's the clinical criteria, 
attack. So that really is a fever or it could be some symptom of acute respiratory infection, which could be shortness of breath, which is on the more severe end of the spectrum, could be cough, could be sore throat, and that could be with or without a fever. So they're, they're the criteria for testing at this point in time. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, there aren't other people that could potentially have coronavirus, but that is... That is the testing criteria from the powers that be. So um, if addition, you, yes, sorry. Sorry to interrupt, but so say you have a cough, but you haven't been overseas, you haven't been in touch with anyone diagnosed with the coronavirus. Um, because you only have a cough, but you don't have those other criteria, can people then assume, A, they don't need to get a test, and B, just they've just got a cold? Correct. But what we do say at the moment, you know, in the past we've said, you know, and I think we've spoken in the past as well, we have a little cough and it's all okay and, you know, soldier on. So at the moment we're saying no, if you do have a cough but you're otherwise well, please do stay at home, please don't go into a large gathering or visit the aged care home which currently they're in lockdown do practice the social distancing, do, you know, have all the hygiene measures, coughing into elbows, etc., washing hands thoroughly, etc. But it doesn't mean that you should go and find out, is this cough coronavirus? No. How do you get tested if you match that criteria, if you meet the criteria? Yes, so can I go, I'll tell you something that's very, um, I think, really helpful for people. It's the triage that's coming out. And I'll just say there are some other criteria for testing. Um, and one is obviously, it's obvious, people would need to present or call an ambulance, present to ED or call an ambulance. And that's obviously if they have acute, severe symptoms, respiratory distress, etc. So, of course, we are testing all of those patients. Now, as far as the, the triaging is concerned, that is actually very helpful at the moment. And this is what's recently come out from the Chief Medical Officer. And I think it's actually really, really helpful information. So someone who has no symptoms at all, they can seek the information out on worldwideweb.health.gov.au as well as healthdirect.gov.au. So if the actual person with no symptoms is at low risk of exposure, then we just say maintain social distancing and the good hand hygiene. If that person with no symptoms has a high risk of exposure, example, they've been overseas recently or they've been in close contact with someone with COVID, then they should stay at home and they should call either their GP surgery or the, you know, the various coronavirus hotline, the 1-800-020080 for advice. Now, someone that has symptoms, and that could be a fever, it could be a cough, it could be a sore throat, could be shortness of breath, could be just tiredness. So if the symptoms are severe, you know, and you can't stop coughing or it's hard to breathe, then that's when you should call an ambulance and inform them and go to the local public hospital, get a, a, you know, a mask on as soon as possible, call ahead if you can. If the symptoms are mild, then what we're saying is stay at home. You can visit the health.gov.au website. You can visit healthdirect.gov.au. You can call on that number I provided, the 1-800-020080, or you can call your general practitioner, the general practice, for advice on whether you actually need to attend a local clinic for assessment. And so what we're doing, a lot of the GP practices at the moment are triaging, um, and those triaging, some are through reception, some are through doctors, 
summer through their nurses and nurse practitioners and we're triaging patients and providing advice to patients of the practice usually of whether they should attend a um, collection centre. There's quite a few of them around the place different associated with different hospitals but you need to call ahead and wear a surgical mask and there are wait times. We are doing some testing in the community in GP practices but we tend to do the, the lower risk categories. So it's variable and definitely guidance is needed but they're the best ways of, of sort of managing and navigating through. <laughs> and do you know what happens if you come back with a positive result? So it is a notifiable illness now, so the public health department does become involved and then you are at home for 14 days until and until symptoms resolve. They do contact tracing of people that have been in your presence, quite detailed contact tracing, looking at how many minutes you were this person and where were you and for how long, etc. And the public health department then do contact tracing, but those people certainly need to be isolated at home, depending on their environment at home and where there's other people who are pregnant or immunocompromised may, may alter, but usually in the home Masks aren't necessarily needed, but certainly they can go into their garden if it's not an apartment, but shouldn't be really going beyond that, that space um, until they're, they're cleared to do so. If people really have to um, go out for a medical appointment, um, they would have to call ahead and certainly wear a mask, but really isolation is the key. That's really the, how we're managing it currently. I mean, if people do require medical input, but they're otherwise stable, we have now some Medicare rebateable phone consults with GPs and actually a lot of other health professionals and specialists as well. So we can attend to quite a lot of things over the phone. So no one's having increased exposure or risk. So that's certainly an option to discuss with your general practitioner or other health specialist. For more severe things and if someone had a diagnosis confirmed or if they hadn't and they had quite severe symptoms, then obviously that's a more urgent situation for ambulance or emergency department with appropriate protective equipment. Now you just touched on it there, but what exactly does self-isolation mean? Yes, it's a very, very... <laughs> Good question and a very important question at the moment as well. I do direct everyone to the health.gov.au website. There's a lot of really good fact sheets. Now, basically, there's a few different lot of people who need to, to isolate. So all people who arrive in Australia um, from midnight the 15th of March 2020 or think they've been in close contact with a confirmed case, they are required to self-isolate for 14 days. And so basically when you're in isolation, you know, people should monitor themselves for symptoms including, you know, fever, cough, sore throat. So these are people that are self-isolating who might not be, they're not necessarily diagnosed at this point. Um, so they monitor for symptoms. Um, they really should be staying at home or in a hotel if that's where they are, not going to any public places, not going to work, not going to school or childcare or university or public gatherings. Um, only people that they usually live with should be in the home with them, not seeing any visitors. Um, and if they're in a hotel or some other space, avoiding contact with other staff or guests. Um, they do say, like I said, if you are well, no need to wear any surgical masks at home. But you know, anyone obviously who is well, um, who's not in isolation, then you, you do need to rely on people for food and necessities and that, you know, prized possession and commodity right now of toilet paper. 
Um, <laughs> but if you must leave the home, then that's when people do need to wear a surgical mask um, and all the hygiene measures. So if someone, when they were in self-isolation, they're monitoring for symptoms, you know, and they might have body aches or a runny nose or muscle pain, there's all sorts of, you know, non-specific symptoms. But if they do develop any of those symptoms within 14 days of, say, returning to Australia or within 14 days of the last contact of a case, then that's when you need to follow that triaging system that I talked about. What about all those people, myself included, who, whose workplace have decided to um, allow their staff to work from home to try and flatten out the curve, as yes. we've been told? Yes. What does isolation look like for us? Because we, yes. we, most of us wouldn't have had any of those criteria you mentioned earlier, and most of us wouldn't have been overseas in the last two weeks. What, what are the parameters that we should be keeping to? This will be an evolving space. So what I say now might not be relevant in a couple of weeks or in a month. <laughs> yes. But for now, if you don't meet any of those criteria, you don't actually need to self-isolate, but you're choosing to or work is, you know, wanting to not have to worry about public transport, etc., and really um, supporting the idea and concept of social distancing, then you are free to, <laughs> within the schemes of no crowds, you know, greater than 100, etc., etc., you are free to go about your daily existence. But social distancing, um, you know, keeping, if you can, one and a half metres from people, which is sometimes difficult, but if you go out in, in the public, you know, not hugging, not kissing, washing hands, hygiene measures, coughing and sneezing into elbows, being mindful of crowds, obviously the ban is on 100 and over with people, but, you know, certainly if you've got 20 people crammed in a small space, there'd be higher risk of transmission. So I think it's just about being sensible, really. And I, I think for now, we should be trying to get about our lives, but just being mindful and sensible with good hygiene and practices and the social distancing, as we're calling it. What's the advice for pregnant women? Because I imagine if I was pregnant right now, yes. I'd be quite worried. Yes, understandably so. When we, I talked about those phone consults, some of them, a lot of them are Medicare abatable, not all of them, but pregnant women are considered in that category as a vulnerable group. Now, the thing is, at the moment, we don't have a lot of specific information related to pregnant women with coronavirus. This will be an evolving space as, you know, studies and time and the experience of Australia and worldwide. For now, it seems like pregnant women haven't been severely affected. However, that is going to be, like I said, we'll, we'll learn more over the coming weeks to months. But we know in our experience with the flu and influenza that pregnant women definitely are at an increased risk. They are the ones that often would end up in ICU and then, you know, in prior fit and healthy women. So we do have to be very cautious and very sensible and so therefore we do consider pregnant women in inverted commas to be a vulnerable group with regards to coronavirus but it's not need for panic but it is definitely time for sensible <laughs> behaviour. The Royal Australian New Zealand College of Obstetrics and Gynaecology just today have come out saying that they definitely feel pregnant women should be utilising the telehealth and telemedicine for non-urgent consults, some of their antenatal appointments where 
you know, where it's indicated. Obviously, it needs to be an arrangement between the pregnant woman and her treating team um, and treating hospital, treating obstetricians. So definitely a pick up of the phone to find out what the best plan of action is. But where possible, taking advantage of the telehealth and the phone consults would certainly be the way to go and is what is recommended. So if you did have to go into a hospital for your checkups, would you be advising that they wear a mask? Because I know I know masks are principally to stop you spreading it to other people. But Correct. Um, I also am aware that medical staff, uh, the ones on the front line, are, are possibly needing them more than others. And I'm just wondering if it is one of those checkups that you have to go in for, mm. knowing it's a hospital and there could be sick people, is that a precaution they should consider? At the moment, the answer is no, masks aren't necessary in that instance. But I'm not saying not to do it if people have access to it and that's what makes them feel comfortable, but that is not the recommendation that's being made from the governing bodies at the moment. But certainly they are saying, and this is again an evolving space, but the college is urging again the adoption of telehealth and cancellation of elective surgeries to sort of free up space um, as well as closing maternity units to visitors, etc. So this, this will change with time. But for the moment, no, they're not suggesting you should wear a mask if you have to go. And hopefully the hospital, the maternity unit, the antenatal unit, etc. And yes, definitely, you know, sterilising appropriately and very mindful of what's going on and will be doing everything in their capacity to protect their patients and they're pregnant women. What about children? Because uh, there's a lot of concern out there at the moment in terms of schools remaining open. Mm. Um, (laughs) Yes, we both laugh because we both are working parents with children at school. I know my daughter's school, even though it's public and it's still open, 50% of the school aren't there. Correct. So what are the concerns when it comes to children as a GP? I think, again, we have found that the majority of people that have been really suffering more severe effects and the fatal effects of coronavirus have been people that are more vulnerable and over 70. There haven't been as many children. However, that's not to say children can't be affected. We also believe that a lot of children might be carriers and might you know, be asymptomatic or not very significant symptoms and certainly could be contributing to some community spread. However, having said that, it is a very controversial issue for sure. At the moment, what is more concerning to me is that there is advice that's being given. Not everyone is agreeable to that advice. However, there's a bit of a a mishmash of what's going on where some kids are going to school, some kids not, some schools are closing, others are staying open and that's what concerns me more than anything to be honest. I feel that there needs to be consistent across the board changes or consistent across the board keeping things as they are for the moment. I think it needs to be very consistent. The reality however is in order to really flatten the curve in a very aggressive manner it does need action that is more in that in inverted commas, lockdown direction, which would indicate closures of schools. However, (laughs) 
we also have to take into consideration that children, if parents have been, you know, keeping children away from school when they have had any symptoms and being sensible and mindful of not visiting aged care centres or, you know, vulnerable groups, including potentially grandparents, or well, that's another issue, then these children have been with each other for the last eight weeks every single day. So, you know, there, <laughs> there's a, a lot of controversy with it. You did just touch on grandparents. Many families rely heavily on their grandparents yeah. um, to look after children when they're working. And even after, even when they're not looking after their kids, they're a big part of our lives. What's your advice as a GP in terms of that interaction between grandparents and children? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's a very, very tricky question because the relationships are so important and um, for, for the grandchildren and the grandparents like and the parents in there as well, they get a, a free moment. So there's a mental health aspect to it as well, a potential loneliness or avoidance of loneliness aspect in addition to the safety and health aspect. Certainly if children are unwell, even with a mild symptom, I would suggest keeping them away from grandparents, particularly if grandparents are 70 and above. For grandparents that are, you know, immunocompromised or have significant other health issues, then certainly you need to be very, very mindful and cautious of that. I think the social distancing, so as, as painful as it might be, less hugs and kisses and maybe more, more, a little bit more distance for the moment, which would be very difficult, but a little bit of the high with the elbow rather than the high with the hug and the sloppy kiss might be in order. There is really no right or wrong, but we do have to be mindful that children could carry the, the illness, the coronavirus, without showing significant symptoms and be very mindful that People over 70 and other vulnerable groups certainly are at the most increased risk of having serious and significant, you know, negative outcomes. Alicia, thank you so much for all of that information. It's good to get it straight from the source. Oh, you're very welcome. And I hope everyone stays safe and um, we'll hopefully, hopefully flatten this curve and, and move forward and beyond this and um, look back on it with some lessons learned and hopefully, you know, not too many serious outcomes. But yeah, we'll, we'll see. Thanks, Alicia. Speak soon. Thank you. Take care. That's Dr. Alicia Thornton-Benko and we'll put those numbers she mentioned in the notes of this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.